Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as our guest speaker delivers this week's message. Good morning, and it is a, an honor and a privilege to be back here with you guys. We were here in October of last year, and um, hopefully you remember that. I know I remember it. We have lots of good memories just from that week that we were here, and um, I don't know if you were part of the uh, Team Morton um, reverse charades, uh, but we won, and so you should be proud of that. I remember it, and I, you know, if I had a trophy, that would be my one trophy, so um, uh, before I forget, I was in Fort Worth yesterday morning at a men's breakfast. I sat next to Pastor Steve or Missionary Steve uh, Switzer, and um, he wanted me to tell you guys hello from them, and so I wanted to say that before I forget. We love them. Uh, we're so thankful for them for many, way, for many reasons, but uh, one of them is that they introduced us to you and you to us, and uh, it was about 11 years ago, September of 2010, that we came uh, and shared with you guys what, what, what God had put on our hearts to do, and um, you guys, I feel like, took a chance on us early on and partnered with us, and so we're so thankful for that. Uh, you know, I don't know what possessed you to get on board with, you know, a, a couple of Texans, um, and not just Texans, but Aggies <laughs> going to the other side of the world, and so um, thank you for that, though. Uh, we are Aggies. I love talking about being an Aggie. It's a talk about when we won the night before, but we lost to Old Miss last night. Um, but we don't, I don't want to talk about that game. I do want to mention a game that happened about a month ago. I don't know if any of you watched it, but uh, the underdog, un, unranked Texas A&M Aggies um, went up against Alabama, number one Alabama at that time. And, you know, nobody picked us to win but we ended up winning. And, you know, as, as much detractors as there are, hey, thank you, thank you. I had a lot to do with that. Um, as, as many detractors as we usually have as Aggies, I mean, there's a whole category of jokes about Aggies, right? Uh, I grew up hearing these jokes. Um, as many detractors as we usually have, we had so many, I think that's the, the most fans we've ever had as Aggies uh, on that day. And I think that it all goes back to, I mean, first of all, people just, unless you're an Alabama fan, nobody likes Alabama. They've been winning too much, right? Uh, They need to share the love. But um, the other thing is, as Americans, I think we love an underdog story, don't we? It's it's really in our DNA as a nation. I mean, the, the plucky colonists going up against Uh, the king across the pond, you know, and winning our freedom. Um, And we like it in all forms, you know, war stories. I mean, you think of, uh, I've been listening to the audio book, Gates of Fire, which is about the Battle of Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans held off the the army of the Persians. And then, um, you know, we like it even in stories like mom and pop shops going up against big corporations, right? But I think where it, most of the time we see it play out is in sports. I mean, if you think of any sports movie, I would say probably 90% of sports movies have some kind of an underdog story, whether it's, you know, Rudy or Remember the Titans or Hoosiers or um, Rocky 1 through 
20, however many of those are. I mean, somehow Rocky is always the underdog, right? Um, we love watching or hearing or reading an underdog story, but I think we don't really like being the underdog. If we're the underdog in that story, uh, then that's a position we really don't want to be in most of the time. I think if we're honest, though, I think a lot of us, probably most of us, feel like the underdog when it comes to just life in general, right? And, and maybe walk in the Christian life. Um, we feel like the underdog, and I know we don't like it, but as believers, as followers in Christ, it's really a great position to be in. Um, you know, who would have thought that an Aggie who studied computer science at A&M, a software engineer living in Fort Worth, Texas, you know, um, that, that could ever be used to start a coffee house on the other side of the world in Asia uh, with the goal of, of reaching people, UPGs, unreached people groups, with the good news? Um, or who would have thought that that would be a, a plan that somebody would have, first of all, but also who would ever think that it would actually be working, that God would be doing something there? Uh, I know if you had talked to me 15 years ago when I was still a software engineer in Fort Worth, and you had told me that plan, I probably would have said, that's crazy. You know, that is not the way it goes. And I almost um, called my sermon this morning, I almost called it the underdog. Because we're going to look at an underdog story here. I feel like an underdog. I think we all can identify as that. But really, the story is not about the underdog. The story is about our extraordinary God and how he likes to use the underdog, use the ordinary people. And that's really why we like to tell our story, why we like to share about what God has done in our lives, because it really highlights this principle that we see over and over again in Scripture and that we're going to look at this morning, that our extraordinary God likes to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And when he does it, not only does he get the glory, but we fulfill our purpose. We find our purpose in life, and that's bringing glory to God. And so turn with me, if you will, to Judges chapter 6 this morning, or uh, swipe to unlock however you want to get to your scriptures this morning. Uh, let me give you a little bit of context and background of what's going on uh, in the story. This is the book of Judges, and Judges chronicles the... Uh, the period of the judges in the um, nation of Israel. And so it's a period in, in Israel's history, and it's sandwiched in between when they uh, came out of Egypt and they wandered through the desert for, or through the wilderness for 40 years, and then they finally were led into the promised land. They took possession of their land. Uh, so th that's where we find the judges. It happens this happens before they set up their first king, crown their first king, Saul. So <clears throat> it's this period in between when they're in the promised land, but they're being led by God through this series of, of men and women who we call judges. And uh, this, this period of time is actually characterized by uh, this cycle of events that happens over and over again through the book of Judges. And it starts out with the people of Israel following God and they're serving God and worshiping God, and then something happens. They begin to, you know, things are going well, and they begin to forget that they need God, and they start to turn away, and they start to worship idols and things that are not God's, and they, they start to, um, they begin to uh, leave the commandments that God had given them through Moses and stop following them. 
And when that happens, God allows them to come under some kind of oppression, uh, some kind of harassment from another people group or, or uh, a neighboring nation. They come in and they oppress them, and the people of Israel realize their need for God, and they begin to turn back to God, and they begin to cry out for a deliverer, cry out for deliverance, and ask God to save them. And then at that point, God raises up a deliverer that we call a judge in, in this book, and um, that deliverer delivers the people, and the cycle begins over again. They, they follow God, and then they begin to turn away. And so that is where we find the nation of Israel and Gideon in Judges chapter 6. They're right in the middle of one of these cycles. And so let's start in Judges 6 verse 1. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So God had allowed them to come under the oppression of the Midianites and some of their buddies, the Amalekites and other eastern people. And this had been going on for seven years. The, these people come in and they just ravage the land, it says. They, they take the crops that they had already harvested. They destroy the ones that they haven't. They destroy their animals. Uh, the Israelites are, are so, um, uh, so distraught that they run up into the hills and they hide up in the hills. And they're just, um, they're just in shambles, the nation of Israel is right now. And so all of this has been happening for seven years, over and over, this cycle of them coming in and, and destroying the land and then leaving and coming back. And, um, and so Israel, after seven years, in verse 6 there, we see that Israel cries out for deliverance. It says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And when they did, when they turned their hearts to him, he called someone out to deliver them. He began to raise up a judge, and that's where we find Gideon. So skip down to verse 11 there. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, I don't know if um, you know what threshing wheat is. I'm assuming that you guys know more than I do because I had to look it up on Google. But um, so the way that, that Gideon would have threshed wheat back then is uh, he would have gone to a high place where there was some wind, usually what we call a threshing floor, and he would beat the wheat and then he would toss it up into the air. Beating the wheat would separate the chaff from the grain and then he'd toss it in the air and this is why it's done on a high place. He'd toss it in the air, and the wind would come through, and it'd blow the chaff away, and the grain, the good stuff, would fall back down. And you do that over and over until you have your grain. And so it's done on a hill, a high place where the wind can catch it and blow it away. But where do we find Gideon doing this? He's in a wine press, which is the opposite of a hill. It's a depression or a pit. And so Gideon is so scared of the Midianites and so distraught that he's just going through the motions 
He's down there um, threshing wheat in a pit where there is no wind, just going through the motions, trying to eke out a little bit of a living to get by, hiding from the enemy. And the first thing we see is the extraordinary God chooses ordinary people. And I think if you looked at Gideon here, and later on we're going to see this is how Gideon views himself, he would even see himself as below average, right? Less than ordinary. But our extraordinary God loves to choose ordinary people. And Gideon here, he's hiding from the invading enemy. And God shows up and he says, you're a mighty warrior. Now, I think if I were in Gideon's shoes, and I'm, I know that I'm hiding, I know that I'm afraid, and somebody shows up and says, hey, mighty warrior, I'm going to use you to save your people, I would probably think that that person is making fun of me. Just, just to be honest, I would think that, hey, this guy is really wanting, this is sarcasm, and he's making fun of me. And I think you see Gideon is a little skeptical um, of this, this person's intentions. I don't think he's sure that it's actually the Lord. And so he questions, um, if the Lord is for us, where has he been for the last seven years? You know, What is his plan to save us from these people? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm choosing you to save Israel. You're my plan, Gideon. And as I said, Gideon is skeptical. In verse 15, we read, uh, Gideon replies, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So Gideon says, okay, if you're for real about this, you have got the wrong person, all right? I'm from the half-tribe of Manasseh. We're not even a full tribe. We're a half-tribe. Uh, and then my clan, the Abizarites, we're the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest person in the weakest clan, so if you're looking for somebody, check out Samson down the road, but I am the wrong person to lead us to uh, victory here. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we can be like Gideon. We start to look at, at our lack of qualifications, the things that make it where we can't be used by God. You see, Gideon was surrounded by hurting people who were under oppression. God wanted to use Gideon to deliver them, but he was reluctant to say yes we are also surrounded by hurting and oppressed people. John 8, 34, Jesus says, very, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Before we find Christ, without Jesus as our Savior, we are slaves to sin. We, that means we don't have the ability to not sin. We have no ability to avoid sin without Jesus. And that's how the people around us, the people who don't know Jesus are, they can't not sin. I know you're not supposed to use a double negative, but that, that's what it is right here. They can't not sin. And uh, people, the people around us there also, not only can they not sin, but they cannot find their way, their own way to freedom. Matthew 9:36, Jesus says, when, when he, being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know how to find that. I don't know if you've ever watched sheep without a shepherd, uh, but they can't find their own way. But Jesus came to deliver them. Luke 4.18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So that's Jesus' mission, to come and set the oppressed free. And you know what? His plan is to use us, followers of Christ, believers, to be a part of that mission. 
Matthew 9, 28, 19, and 20, he gives us what's called the Great Commission. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus says, go and tell all nations. And really that word nation there, I know a lot of times we can think of uh, this verse right here and think, okay, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, our nation has heard the good news, right? There's people around us who still need to hear, but really our nation is reached. And so we need to go to other nations. And so this is talking about foreign missions, right? Uh, But really that word nations right there, it means ethnos. Or it's, it's the word ethnos. It, it's where we get the word ethnicity. And so what the, a better translation would be, go, therefore go and make disciples of all people, all people groups. And you know what? God is bringing the people to us, right? I mean, we have had an influx of refugees, and it's a politically charged issue, I know. But uh, the bottom line is there are people that we would never have run into, never had access, and they would probably never have had access to the gospel except for the fact that God is bringing them to our doorsteps. And now we have the ability to share the good news with them. So go and tell all the nations, whether they're around the world or across the street, about the freedom Christ offers. Those of us who are believers and followers of Christ, we have been, it's not a suggestion, it's not the great Uh, suggestion. It's the great commission or command. We have been commanded to go and make disciples. You know, many times I think we're like Gideon. We are reluctant to be used by God or maybe skeptical that we could even, that God could even use us. Maybe we look at the size of the task and say, God, there are billions of people who need to hear about Jesus. Just here in Taylorville, there are thousands of people who need to hear about Jesus. How can I make a dent in that? That task is too big. Or maybe we're scared and say, you know what? I, people make fun of me. People will think I'm weird or, or we feel inadequate. You know, I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm too young. I'm too ordinary. You don't know my past, God. My past disqualifies me. But the Bible is full of people who started out reluctant to be used by God. And they're people that now when we look at them, we would think of them as heroes of the faith. Um, But they started out just like Gideon here, and they started out like a lot of us are, uh, skeptical and reluctant. Uh, You might recognize some of these names. Let's talk about Moses. Exodus 3, uh, verse 10, uh, God shows up to Moses, and really what happens is Moses is out. He's he's fled from Egypt. He is... um, Uh, a fugitive because he's murdered someone. And so he's out being a shepherd in the wilderness and he sees this bush burning but not being burned up. And so he goes to investigate and, and as he walks up to the bush, this voice comes out of it and says, Moses, you're on holy ground, take off your shoes. And so this voice begins to speak to Moses and tell him that he wants to use him to save his people Israel from Egypt. Lead them out of Egypt. And here in chapter 3, verse 10, God speaks to Moses and says, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And, you know, if I saw that, I think probably I would say, Okay, God, you know, you're speaking to me out of this bush. Somehow you're keeping it from being burned up. I believe you. I'm going to go. You know what? Actually, I think I would probably respond 
a lot more like Moses actually does respond in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses doesn't even, he's not even phased by this burning bush. He immediately looks at his own inadequacies and says, God, you can't use me. Who am I that you, could, that you want to use me? Another guy, uh, this guy's name is Jeremiah. He was one of the great prophets of Israel. And in Jeremiah 1, verse 5, God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Man, what a pep talk, right? You weren't even a twinkle in your parents' eye, and I already chose you to be used as a prophet to the nations. But Jeremiah responds much like Moses in verse 6. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. They were looking at their limitations, uh, their lack of experience, maybe the circumstances around them. They were thinking of their past, just like a lot of us do when we tell God all the reasons why he can't use us. But There was good news for them, and there's good news for us. It's not about them. It's not about Moses. It's not about uh, Jeremiah. It's not about Gideon. It's not about me, and it's not about you. It's about God. Look how God responds to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12. Remember, Moses says, "Um, who am I that uh, you would want to use me? And God said, I will be with you. He doesn't even address who Moses is, right? He says, that doesn't matter. I'll be with you. In Jeremiah, uh, how he responds to Jeremiah in verse 7 and 8 of Jeremiah 1, he says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. Why? For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. You see, the um, constant in the equation means that the variables don't matter in this case. The constant in the equation is that God is with you. And so the variables, whether it's Moses or Jeremiah or you or me, whether you have a past that you think disqualifies you, whether you think the circumstances around you make it where it's too hard, it doesn't matter if God's telling you to do it. He is with you, and that's what matters. Judges 6, let's go back and see how God responds to Gideon because Gideon said, you know, God, you got the wrong guy. And in Judges 6, verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And so God has told Gideon, he showed up and he said, okay, I know you're reluctant. I know you're scared. I know you're hiding, but I'm going to be with you. I want you to go and destroy the Midianites. And so somehow we have to get from Gideon hiding in this wine press to God using Gideon to destroy the Midianites and to free the people, the Israelites, But I don't think it happens overnight. Uh, There's this progression of growing Gideon's faith. We see first the extraordinary God chooses ordinary people, but then the extraordinary God changes ordinary people. And I know we've seen it in our life. You know, we didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, we feel like we're supposed to go to the other side of the world. And then the next morning we got up and got on a plane. That's not how it happened. There were There were months, if not years, in between where God grew our faith and tested our faith and encouraged us. And we see that process happen here in Gideon. We're going to summarize some of these events here. Um, But there's this process of encouraging and testing. And Judges 6, 17, Gideon replied, this is, he's still down in the wine press. 
Um, Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. He says, okay, God, if you're really going to do this, if you really want to use me, I want to be sure. Give me a sign. And we see Gideon is kind of the guy that likes signs. And I think he gets a lot of flack for that, but you know what? I like signs too, right? I, I like to know that it's really God telling me to do something. So verse 18 through 24 of chapter 6, uh, Gideon uh, asks the angel of the Lord to stay while he fixes a meal for him. So he goes off and he fixes this huge meal for him and he brings it back. It had to take hours. And the angel of the Lord says, place the meal on this rock. And so he puts it all down there. And then the angel of the Lord touches it with, touches the food with the end of his staff and fire flares up and consumes the meal and the angel of the Lord is gone. He's disappeared. So Gideon finally realizes, I've been in the presence of God. And so he builds an altar there to the Lord and he calls it, the Lord is peace. And Gideon's faith grew. And then verses 25 through 32, uh, we see God tells Gideon to go tear down the altar of Baal that, um, that Gideon's father, Joash, had built, and that the people, actually the, all the townspeople, his clan, the Abizarites, that they all use. And so um, Gideon goes and he gathers 10 of his servants. And so now we see it's, Gideon has moved out of the wine press, and now he's leading some people. He's got 10 guys that he's gone to um, take care of what God has told him to do. But he's still a little scared of the townspeople, and he's scared of his dad. And so he goes, and he does it at night. These 10 guys go with Gideon. They tear down the altar of Baal, and God tells him to build a new altar to God and then sacrifice his dad's other bull because he's already done one sacrifice and killed his dad's bull. And so he's sacrificing the second bull now. And so I can see why he might have been scared of his dad. Um, But then the next morning when the townspeople woke up, they came and they realized that this altar has been torn down. <clears throat> and so they figure out that it was Gideon. And they come and they tell Joash, his dad, bring out Gideon so that we can kill him. He has to pay for his crime. But Joash actually stands up for Gideon and stands up for God. Um, and we see that Gideon's obedience is already making an impact in his family. It's already changing his family. Joash's dad was the one that built this altar. He was the one that facilitated the worship of a false god in his community. And Gideon, being obedient and standing up and following God, has already changed his dad's life, his family's life. And then uh, his dad comes out and he says, you know what, if Baal is really a god, let him defend himself. Where is he at? Why doesn't he come out and stand up for himself? And um, the people, I guess the people decide, you know what, that's pretty good logic. And so they leave Gideon alone and they go in. And so now Gideon's obedience has not only impacted his family, but it's impacting his community, making changes there, and Gideon's faith grew. And then we see in verse 33 through 35, Gideon calls out an army. Uh, Midian comes back into town. They roll in with their buddies, and they camp in a nearby valley. And the Israelites know what's about to happen because it's the same thing that's been happening for the last seven years. Uh, But this time, something's different. They've cried out to God, and he's doing something. And so verse 34 of chapter 6 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. Now remember, that's his clan, the ones that just wanted to kill him, and now they're ready to follow him into battle. He also sends out messengers to the rest of, the, of his tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, and then to the three neighboring tribes. And so now he's making, his obedience is making an impact 
in his nation. And we see 32,000 men come out to fight with Gideon. And Gideon's battle, or Gideon's faith grew. And then in verse 36 through 34, or 36 through 40, I'm sorry, um, Gideon decides, you know what? I need another sign. I think Gideon looks around, and he sees all these people camped around him. And he says, he has this moment of realization, oh no, I'm really doing this. You know, this is actually happening. This isn't 10 guys that are actually paid to serve me, following me. This is 32,000 people. And we're about to go up against this swarm of the enemy. And so he goes to the threshing floor. And I think it's interesting. We can already see Gideon's faith has grown because he's not in the pit anymore. He's not in the wine press. He goes to the threshing floor, to the hilltop, and he asks God for a sign. He says, um, God, if you're really going to use me to save Israel, like you promised, can you give me this sign? I'm going to put out a wool fleece tonight, overnight. And if you're really going to do what you said you will, will you make the ground in the morning, the ground dry, and the wool fleece soaking wet from the dew? So he goes to bed, and in the morning he wakes up, and God had done exactly like he asked. The fleece was soaking wet. The ground was bone dry. And Gideon, you know, he says, okay, don't be mad at me, God. But I was thinking, can you do the opposite tonight? I mean, it's really cool what you did, but if, if tomorrow morning I wake up and the ground is soaking wet and the fleece is bone dry, wow, that would really be something. And then I would know that you're really going to use me. And he wakes up the next morning and God had done exactly like he asked. And God encouraged him and he gave him that, he grew his faith, Gideon's faith grew again. And then in chapter seven, verses one through eight, we see God is going to, it's a good thing God increased his faith because now he's gonna test that faith. He's gonna reduce his army. Now remember, he has 32,000 people in his army and uh, we haven't seen this yet, but the Midianites have about 135,000 men. So they're a little bit outnumbered. But God says to Gideon, I won't defeat Midian with this many people. Israel would think that they saved themselves. Um, I think if I were Gideon, I'd be saying, no, I promise we won't. You know, we know. We're still, we're really outnumbered. We know it's you, God. Um, but God told Gideon to say to, to his army, if anyone's scared... If anyone's scared at all, just go ahead and go home. And so Gideon says, okay, and he he tells them, and, you know, maybe thinking a few people would leave, I'm sure, but 22,000 men return home. So now they're down to 10,000, and God says, you know what, Gideon, you still have too many men. Um, And he says, I want you to have your men go down to the spring and drink water, and anybody you see that kneels down on the ground and, and puts their face in the water and slurps, uh, the kneelers, we'll call them the kneelers, then you put them on one side, and anybody who picks up the water with their hand and laps like a dog, then put them on the other side. So separate the kneelers and the lappers. So Gideon says, okay. So he has them go through and do that, and there's 300 lappers and 9,700 kneelers. And so I'm sure Gideon's thinking, okay, I'll send these 300 people home. But look what, he, what God says in Judges 7, verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So God had taken this army from 32,000 men down to 10,000, down to 300. And um, so I think 
Gideon, if I were Gideon, I would be uh, a little reluctant. You know, God, I feel like you're sabotaging me. You're setting me up to fail here. Um, But that night, in verses 9 through 15, that night God wakes Gideon up. And he says, if you're afraid to attack, I want you to sneak down to the, uh, to the enemy camp and listen into their conversation. Once you overhear their, their conversation, you're going to be encouraged and you're going to be ready to attack. So Gideon and his servant, they sneak down to the outskirts of camp. And uh, in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 12, it says, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people, peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. So I think I would be like, God, were you wanting me to be encouraged by coming down and seeing this? But just as Gideon arrives, he overhears a man telling his friend of a dream he had. And it's a pretty weird dream. Um, This guy tells about this dream where a loaf of bread rolled into the camp and hit a tent and knocked it over. And so his friend hears this dream and says, you know what that is? That's Gideon. His friend said, that must be Gideon the Israelite. God has already, your dream is telling us God has already given us all into Gideon's hands. And so Gideon, his faith grew. He heard that and his faith grew. And then his first reaction is to worship God. And I love that, that finally Gideon has stopped questioning. He stopped asking for signs and he says, okay, God, I know that you are an extraordinary God. And then in verse 15, he returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianites, the Midianite camp into your hands. And so in the middle of the night, he wakes up his men. And now we're going to see that God has chosen an ordinary person. He uh, chooses ordinary people. He changes ordinary people. And then God uses ordinary people in extraordinary ways. So in the middle of the night, Gideon takes his 300 men up against these 135,000 Midianites. And that's if you didn't do the math. I did the math. I'm a numbers guy. And um, that's for every one Israelite soldier, there's 450 Midianites that they're responsible for. Um, and so this is, God gives Gideon this insane battle plan, this crazy battle plan where he says, okay, split up your people. Uh, Gideon splits up his people into three groups of 100. He gives each one of them not a weapon. There's no, no sword in the, in the group. He gives them a torch in one hand that they put a jar on top of. And um, he gives them a trumpet. And so they've got a torch in one hand, covered up, and a a trumpet in the other. And then he spreads them out around the camp of the Midianites. And I would imagine if if you were standing there that you look to your left and to your right, and you probably can't see, you know, any of your other friends. You're standing there by yourself, basically, around this camp of the enemy, just as many as the sand on the seashore, And like I said, it's the middle of the night, and so uh, this is God's timing. It's perfect, right? And there's the switch in the the guard. They're changing guards. The guards that were on duty are going off duty. The guards uh, that are coming on duty are walking out to where they're supposed to be. And so uh, most of the camp is asleep, but you have these few people moving around. They probably have their weapons on. And then at that point is when God tells Gideon to act Chapter 7, verse 20, it says, The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hand and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, 
All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and the enemy fled, and then it tells all the places that they fled to and how Gideon's army chased them. But what a crazy plan, right? Only God, only our extraordinary God could come up with a crazy plan like that and it actually work. A crazy story of our extraordinary God using an ordinary person. And you know what? God still likes to work that way, doing amazing things through normal people like you and me. God wants to perform miracles in your life to use you to lead the hurting and the oppressed people that he's already placed in your life to deliverance and to bring glory to him. He wants to do miracles like taking a, a couple of Aggies to the other side of the world to start a coffee house to reach UPGs. And like I said, he didn't do that all in one day. He brought us along exactly in the right timing, exactly in his timing, and exactly how he knew we needed it to be. Growing our faith in stages along the way until one day we did wake up and we got on a plane to go to the other side of the world. It's an insane plan. It shouldn't work on paper. But when it does, God gets the glory. And those are the kinds of things. I'm sure there are people in here who have stories like that where this is not something. God told me to do this. It didn't seem like this was a good idea, but I followed God and, and it worked. And now he gets the glory. You know, around the world, there are billions of poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, oppressed people. And right around us here in Taylorville, like I said, there are thousands of people who need the freedom that Jesus has already won for them. Jesus gave us the, ch the, the church. He gave us this command, the Great Commission. I read it earlier, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. But I left a part out. I don't know if you noticed that, but um, at the end of verse 20, Jesus tells us why this crazy plan will work. It says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Just like he promised to Gideon, just like he promised to Moses and Jeremiah, he makes the same promise to us. Yes, I'm taking you to around the corner and to the ends of the earth to tell people about Jesus, and I know you're scared. I know you feel inadequate. I know you know the task is, is big, but don't worry, because I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Let me get you, everyone, to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to ask a couple of questions and think about what we've been talking about this morning. I've been talking about God doing extraordinary things through ordinary followers of Jesus. But maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior. But you're wondering how to do that. How do you begin a relationship with Christ? It's admitting that you're a sinner. That's the first thing. And then believing that Jesus died for your sins on the cross, that he was buried and that he rose again, and then confessing him to be Lord of your life. Now, if that's something you want to do this morning, I'm going to lead you through a short prayer, an example prayer. And if you want to receive Jesus as your personal Savior, you may pray something like this along with me in your head. God, I admit that I'm a sinner I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. 
I confess Jesus as Lord. Please forgive me of my sins and save me. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, or if you have questions about a relationship with Jesus, we would love for you to come and find one of us afterwards. We'd love to be able to to help with your questions or to be able to rejoice with you in your decision. But maybe you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Christ. How does God want to use you to bring hope and freedom to those around you and those around the world who need to hear about Jesus? You know, it might be going to the other side of the world to start a coffee house, but it doesn't have to be that. Maybe it's starting an outreach to an underserved part of the population in this area. Or maybe, like we talked about, it's ministering to refugees that God is already bringing to our doorsteps. Maybe God wants you to adopt an orphan and be an object lesson of his love and how he has adopted us into his family to that orphan, but also to the community around you. Maybe God wants you to invite someone who's alone to spend Thanksgiving with your family. Or maybe it's as simple as inviting your neighbor to church or telling them about Jesus the possible next steps that God could be um, putting on our hearts today is they're infinite because our God is infinitely creative. He is an extraordinary God. So this morning, if you are a believer, ask God to show you the poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, and oppressed people that he's already put in your life and how he wants to use you to help them find freedom in Christ. And maybe you're reluctant, but remember The good news is it's not about you. Whatever he's asking you to do, he's going to be with you, and he'll do it through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your word is instructive. God, we thank you that you promise us over and over and over again that you are going to be with us, Lord. When you ask us, when you command us to go and make disciples, that we can trust that you're going to equip us and that you're going to do it through us because you are going to be with us. You're going before us and behind us. You're surrounding us, God, and so we can rest in that truth. Lord, I pray that you would stretch our faith today. I pray that those who need encouragement, you would encourage them. Those who need to be stretched and grow in faith, that you would stretch them, Lord and that you would do amazing things, miraculous, extraordinary things through us ordinary followers of Christ. And God, that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.